Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme this morning on what is a sunny day here in the capital is Hasina Zaman. Hasina is the CEO of Compassionate Funerals, a female-led funeral service that sets out to better serve the diverse communities of the UK. Um, Hasina, very warm welcome to you this morning and thank you so much for joining us on the show. Uh, Lovely. Um, Thank you, Scott. And yeah, I'm like super honoured and privileged to be on the show and and, uh, very excited. Thank you. Uh, you guys have been doing amazing, awesome work. I've been following your, listening to your podcast and mm. following your work. Yeah, so thank you for that. No, it's absolutely fine. I've seen it's a pleasure for us having you um, on the programme. Um, certainly, um, it's a nice day for it as well. Um, I think a good place to uh, to start here would be by addressing the ongoing COVID-19 situation that we've all had to live through over the last 15 or 16 months. I suppose we do have a little bit of optimism now with July the 19th that restrictions are being lifted and that business is going to be resuming operations as normal but reflecting on the last sort of year and a bit just to what extent has it affected you and your business being involved in the funeral side of things i mean the the effects and the impacts have been huge and and in many ways but um you know if i can just go back into the the initial phase back in um, 2020 March, mm-hmm. the end of March when we were going in, and like we really went from like like you know everything to zero where we went into full lockdown straight away, and um, for us we had to you know quickly interpret um, individual uh, individual businesses the government guidelines or how we keep open, stay open, stay safe, uh, make sure we have adequate PPE. Um, so there was lots of internal changes that was made. We, we wrote a, a quick COVID, very, very, you know, a snapshot that's easy to understand and digest uh, policy, COVID-19 policy. It was called coronavirus policy at the time. Um, so it would then give people, <clears throat> our, you know, um, communities and clients an idea of how we were operating. And then we, there was lots of internal logistical um solutions that we had to come to and practical they were like very practical so initially we had no bereaved um, families coming to our funeral home um we had we weren't allowed to do any of the preparation for the disease literally we had to just you know either if they were of a muslim background we had to shroud them um and then and then put them straight into the in you know for a burial um, and then people of different faiths, we, again, we weren't allowed to do any preparations. It's, it's called in-coffining, so put them straight back straight into the coffin and go and do the funeral. So so there was like lots of internal changes that was being, that we made and we stipulated and we int- implemented. Um, so that's like on a logistical level. And we were just going really quite, you know, holistic, just buying as much PPE as possible. And, and it was like almost like PPE was... PPE was like new. This this type of thing was like a new thing to us, but it mm. wasn't. We wear masks, you know. We have to, as members of our staff, they have to wear really, really like, uh, you know, those sort of space spacesuit type of masks that have got ventilation on the various sides. And we wear um, disposable um, outer garments and aprons and gloves and face coverings because, you know, there is an aspect of our work where we work with sometimes with chemicals. And um, so, so that went a bit like, for us, and then we, I think we joined in, into that because it was like the mass, the masses that was going on, and so there was that. And then in terms of like how we operated um, and connected and and served the clients, the bereaved clients and the families was was mainly through technology and telephone and video calling, and whether it was Zoom or Teams, one of those sort of platforms where we would take instructions and. Or we would go to the family home and collect paperwork or give paperwork, you know, if it was um, possible. And then when it came to the funeral, I think that was the well, when it came to the funeral, when it came to like loved ones not being able to see their loved ones, not being have, able to have any viewings or 
take part in any of the religious rites where certain communities they have to come and wash dress and say certain prayers, like for example, you know, the Hindu community, the Sikh community and the Muslim community. And all of that was like, you know, zero. There was none of that going on. We weren't allowed to do that. Um, and I just really felt, like for me and the team, like we really felt between, you know, hard and a hard place and a, and a soft place because, you know, the funeral service is all about providing a soft front, providing a soft service and, and a caring service. And, and we really felt that we couldn't do that. And that was really heavily, like, heavily compromised. So when it came to the actual funeral, the impact, I would say, that, um, you know, around the limitations, some cemeteries would only allow six people in, six mourners, six bereaves, some would only allow 15, and they were, like, counting heads, or, you know, it, that was just, just really, really quite difficult. But I have to say, Scott, one thing, that in, in you know, in absolute, um, in all of the families, they were just incredible. They just were so flexible, Hardly anyone complained. You know, people were just so, so, like, you know, they just moved with the flow, you know, moved with the restrictions. And people were much more focused on getting the funeral done rather than not having their needs met, mm. uh, when I reflect. Yeah. So, so that's, that's sort of the business impact, um, I would say. I can imagine it was quite difficult sort of having to abide by restrictions, not allowing bereaved families to sort of have the service they want. But it's such a big help that, of course, they showed that sort of understanding there. Um, and when it came to sort of the guidelines that you sort of touched on at the uh, the beginning that you sort of had to abide by, there's been a lot yeah. made throughout the pandemic of sort of the timeliness, especially of government advice on how certain things should be done and how to operate in a COVID secure way. Um, do you feel that you've been kept sort of well informed throughout the pandemic in a timely way or have you had to sort of go out of your own way to try and interpret guidelines sometimes? Um, yeah, I mean, there was definitely a lot of interpretation of what we could do and couldn't do because mm. it, you know, they were guidelines and it was up to us how we did it. So there was nothing, there was no organisation in between saying, well, actually, you can do this and you can't do that. And I think, and, and that's not, I'm not criticising here, and I think that's just the way the timing, everything just went really, you know, we went into fast lockdown with very little um, that way, you know, I don't know if any organisation could have um, done that. And, and I would say, Certainly the NASD, they did promote and encourage funeral dance to stay open to serve the communities. Um, um, there are some organisations who just said, like, you know, we, we think the funeral directors are, are putting their safety and security at risk and, um, you know, potentially con- contracting the, the, the virus and then taking it to homes and taking it to the communities. You know, that's sort of another layer that was, that was, that was on the you know, on the fringe or in the in the background that was going on. But we, um, so, so, yeah, there was a lot of interpretation. And I remember, like, I think a couple of months into the lockdown, so around about last May, uh, we went to do some, like, um, <clears throat> like it's called um, gusul, which is the bathing. It's an Arabic word for, you know, bathing the deceased. Mm-hmm. It's actually a word for just bathing, you know, and it's just an Arabic word for bathing. But like how to, um, so we went to some training at East London Mosque and uh, there was an imam who went through it. He went through the PPE, what should be, you know, what should, just the preparation. And I have to say, after doing that training and he'd, he'd gone through lots and lots of that process himself. I think like something like 200 bodies of the deceased had he'd washed himself with his team. And he was just saying, long as you do this, long as you have your PPE on, long as you put this amount of, you know, PPE on the deceased. Then, you know, I felt a level of confidence that we could do that. Um, but there was sort of, there was this um, sort of confusion because, you know, we were quite scared ourselves or fearful ourselves of doing that level of preparation because we weren't sure how the virus was uh, acting after someone had died. So is the virus going to last for nine hours, 12 hours, 24 hours, 36 hours? I mean, it just went on and on. So it was how... Is it just there? You know, doing that full time, and then I think we just took a we just took a decision that if someone's been um, if someone died for more than thirty six hours and they've come into our care like two hours up two days after death, mm. then we would do some preparation. Yeah, but, but then until the, the you know until there was something else, but that was like at least two three months into the lockdown, so we just was very very cautious. Mm. Um, of what we could do and there were some families they found other solutions but still use our services you know so I think we were just all including the bereaved we were all very very much like solution led rather than 
um, you know, being upset or and people were upset anyway. That was just the mm. the, the genre, you know, of the, of the of the mood of the ambience that people we were all upset or scared or concerned. So with that under that condition, how do you make? How do you get your loved one have their funeral rites met? Yeah. And just sort of thinking about sort of how you've managed sort of anxieties both within the business and among sort of clients, if you will, over the course of the uh, the pandemic. How has that been as well? Because I can imagine there was sort of a lot of worry about the virus, as you say, a lot of fear. Um, and also maybe one or two people might have been even anxious about just sort of coming into work every day and just working around um, people. Absolutely. I mean, initially we worked, there was a lot of fear, I would say. Um, fear, fear of um, you know definitely getting and giving the virus, mm-hmm. and um, so therefore we you know we did that initial really like no contact with with anyone else and apart from our family, which was it, it, that was a tough call. But uh, you know we tried to stay open because we felt that um, <clears throat> it was more important to be able to serve the community than in a safe way than not. Um, and, and go into isolation. So initially there was a lot of fear. And then, you know, in terms of protecting the staff, we made sure that, you know, we, we, we took on whatever vitamins and um, minerals and food supplements that would help us to stop the, uh, the virus. So, so we, you know, took those um, precautions. And um, and there was a member of staff who did get the virus and who self-isolated, got through it, it was fine. Didn't seem to be able to, you know, give it to the rest of us, which is quite interesting. And I think that we just, we just sort of went with it. It's members of staff because we have a bigger staff team. Or, say, for example, we have a crew. We have three or four, three or four crews of staff that we employ, depending on the funeral and, um, you know, um, and the logistics. So, you know, we just realised that we, it was very, very sometimes very difficult. I'm being honest to say to them, right, don't come into this space, and we would need their help to, you know put the coffin on the hearse and, and to keep that social distance all the time. I mean, initially, I think the first six months we did our best, but there were times and we just sort of relaxed, especially when we came out of lockdown last summer. And, um, yeah, um, and we did say that if we, if there was two of us who'd got the virus, like, um, consecutively, we would close down. And that didn't happen. And, um, and you know, um I just think, yeah, by the you know will of God that we we were main we, we were stayed healthy, we stayed safe, and we kept going. Um, but certainly there was lots of anxiety there. There's no way that I can ever deny that. And I think it's about embracing that, you know, it's about embracing mm. those those elements of emotions that really take you. Like for me, definitely for sure, you know, I I I visited my mortality every day, and I thought, okay, you know, if it's my day to go, then it's my day to go. But I'm not gonna make myself go you know what I'm, saying? I'm not mm-hmm. going to go out my way and get the, the, the condition and it really played a lot of tricks on my mind the virus and the way the virus was presenting itself not just on a physical of those people who died during the the, the, the lockdown and from the virus there were so many elements the virus just was hitting me you know at a personal and professional level and even at a spiritual level, you know, I really have to come to terms with my own mortality. And, so that, and I think that was going on for everybody, you know, like globally. It wasn't just like an, on, an, on a micro level. I think it was happening on a macro level. Mm. So, you know, if I was feeling that level of fear and uncertainty and anxiety, I, I feel like I was just like experiencing, you know, the rest of the sort of collective conscious, you know, if you can call it like that, you know, mindset that we're all going through or our feelings that we were going through. Yeah, exactly. It's made us very self-aware, hasn't it? Self-aware of our own mortality, as you say, and self-aware of the fact that we aren't all infallible as people. I think that's incredibly important. But I think that experience of being thrown in at the deep end and sort of standing up to the COVID challenge, in a way, it's made us stronger, hasn't it? And we've learned an awful lot from the experience we've had over the last year. Would you say that that applies to you as well? Yeah, you know, as, as you're saying that, I've got my whole body's got like goose got bombs. That's like a, that's a sign of your body saying, absolutely, you know, absolutely. Because we did so many funerals, which we weren't used to doing it, and we had to work so like efficiently. You know, it was like we had some operation going. I had to bring in extra members of staff, and we had two teams working. We had, you know, uh, whiteboards up. We had flip chart paper. We had figure out where was who, what was he was doing. I mean, it was a really, really tight operation. Because one of the things, um, I will come back to, you know, what you were saying about um, 
you know, has that made us, you know, resilient or has it given us this level of extra, extra, I suppose, well, you know, like can we get through a difficult time and what it taught us? But, you know, because we were having to, it's a bit like the Beatles um, scenario, you know, they went to Hamburg and they had to like play for 18 hours a day, how many other days, and they just came out brilliant, you know. That was that was their making because they played so much. They were put in after do what they had to, what they were about again and again. And we were in the same. I don't know if you know Malcolm Gladwell's work, and he he says that that basically when you do one thing again and again under intensity, that's what creates the you know that's what creates your like greatness. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to brag or anything. That's what makes you that's what makes you great, or that's what like, takes you from being good to great. And it's that, you know, and it, it is definitely, I look back, especially those two months last um, April and May, because the level of intensity went, went through, when we came out of it and we went down for quite a period and we were doing five, six funerals a week and we thought, oh, like, is it it? You know, <laughs> like, what, what's going on? Why are we finding this really difficult? It's because of that level of intensity. You know, you have mm. that in sports, like when you put your body through like intense training, you come out of it and you do something because of the muscle memory is so fine-tuned you think oh yeah I can do this but with my eyes closed I'm not saying I do funerals with my eyes but all I'm saying there was a level of ease that we experienced when we had to take on the funerals afterwards yeah mm. and that was we never ever thought that would ever happen to us you know in hindsight yeah, I suppose it's one sort of silver lining in the dark cloud, isn't it, to come out of all of this. And we do need to sort of keep hold of that positivity as we move forward into the post-COVID world, don't we, and sort of get to grips with the legacy of the virus, as it were. And just thinking about that, Hasina, before we wrap up on the show, because I'm conscious that we're starting to run short of time, um, we're now eyeing up that July the 19th Freedom Day, if you will, when all social restrictions are going to be lifted almost. Um, it might not be a wholesale return to normality straight away, of course. But what are you expecting for your business, Compassionate Funerals, moving into that period? And where do you see yourselves by this time next year? Well, I think by next year, I think I, I feel that we are going to go into another lockdown. because I'm a bit concerned with this very, you know, this sort of so-called freedom day because we need, still need to be careful. Um, I, I see a lot of, you know, no social distancing going on now. And, you know, the virus hasn't gone away. I know there's um, something like um, <clears throat> over half of the population has been vaccinated now. But I still feel that, you know, we still need to be careful. We need to be careful in ourselves and to be careful with each other. That, that is, uh, you know, I don't want to be doom and gloom here, but I, I just don't want the, these numbers to go up. It's a death, you know. Um, and um, again, I, I feel um, from what I saw the patterns last year and certainly this year in January, the numbers weren't as um, as high as they were for us in London. And you, I know it's different thing, different. The numbers are different part because the second wave, which I call this like this January, was very high in different parts of the country. So, like I, I I'm being honest. I, I'm worried. I'm worried as we go into the autumn and what those numbers are going to look like. And I, and I feel that because there is always going to be a, you know, a flu peak and that is part of the nature of our, of our work. And that's usually, you know, end of autumn, beginning of winter. And um, my concern is that we are going to um, have another peak, basically another. Um, so, and, and then this time last year, this time next year is um, 2022. I feel that, um, you know, possibly that most of the, the country will be vaccinated by then. And um, it will be a new way of living, I, I feel, um, and I think. And I'm not sure what that will be. I don't feel we'll always, we'll ever get back to that so-called this freedom day that, that you know, that we're, we're being promised here. Um, mm. I didn't think I'd be so doing gloom, but I'm just being pragmatic. Um, and I think we have to be careful, and we really, really have to be careful. I don't think we can just just go, you know, go back to normal yet. Um, I think it's going to be here to stay for another couple of years. I feel, I feel, I feel. Yeah. 
Yeah, even with, of course, restrictions not being a legal requirement, I think there'll be some venues that may well look to sort of enforce them at their own discretion and some that may voluntarily stick to things like mask wearing and social distancing, absolutely. So it won't be a wholesale return to the normal we once knew. There are a lot of variables in this as well. There is that September Mm. review again of restrictions. We don't know whether we are going to go backwards into restrictions or not. But let's, of Mm. course, see what happens on that front. And as it becomes clearer and we understand more about what industry is facing and the funeral industry is going to be facing i'd love to have you back on the show with us Asina, once we know a little bit more a few months down the line because um, i've enjoyed having you on the show with us today it's been a real real pleasure and also just a real eye-opener getting to know what's been going on in the sector yeah lovely likewise it's been a complete pleasure and i would love to come back on the show scott um but I think if there's anything that I can, one lesson that I can learn from this last, eight, you know, 20, 15 months, and the lesson would be is to be flexible, to stay open and flexible um, mm. and not to have any hard, fast rules uh, and, and, and just go, because we, the, the, the various, um, you know, aspects of the um, um, restrictions and opening parts of the restrictions has taught us that definitely. Exactly that flexibility, being able to pivot, being able to innovate. Those are the hallmarks of businesses that will survive in the post-COVID world. Absolutely, um, Hasina. Again, yeah. thank you so so much for joining us on the show today. And lastly, do take care and do stay safe with all that's still going on because we're not quite out of the woods with this yet. Yeah, and you too, and the rest of um, you know the leaders' council <laughs> people there. Yeah, so sending you, you know, great, um, yeah, great, great um, energy and regard from us at Compassionate Funerals. Thank you. And I'd also extend that message to all of the listeners tuning in today as well. Please do continue to be sensible and look after yourselves because it does make such a key difference in saving lives, of course, during this time. Um, It was a pleasure for me to welcome Hasina Zaman, CEO of Compassionate Funerals, onto today's programme. Coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup Patrick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Um, So Jeff is not only, of course, a former professional footballer and manager, but he remains the only player in history to have netted a hat-trick in the final of a FIFA World Cup which he famously of course did back in 1966 as England beat West Germany 4-2 after extra time to lift the Jules Rimet trophy Um, I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as I relish the opportunity to speak with Sir Jeff and that interview will be coming up next with a thank you message to our wonderful NHS as well And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope may, may it last. Absolutely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and goodness me, it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player. Uh, tremendous goal scorer and if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved uh, it would be someone like Harry who was a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England so absolutely and I want England to do well I mean I I'm want England to be successful I'm an England supporter I'm a football supporter and I just I really want the country to do well in, in anything in, in all sports and particularly in my sport so I want wanting to bury it and I'll be absolutely I would be as delighted as anybody in the, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my, uh, my achievements, about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three in one sense is, is uh, 
one's saying material, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966 when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um I've I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking um, at that moment. Obviously, a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually with my back to goal. I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park, and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth, but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, if the game's nearly finished, I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the, beyond the sand into the crowd, by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, hands to Kowski, the German keeper, by that time, surely the game's got to be over. But as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss hit it and, it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about... Uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could, after those two hours. And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. yes. I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that that philosophy is right. You're just going to... Uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, making it's going to be a control on that risk not not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life an element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about but sometimes in life you've got to have a go you can't get be successful in terms of long term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy you've got to move forward and the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now being replaced by the National Health Service and we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh absolutely particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing and I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what, what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, but there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and uh, important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the, the amount of people who were interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on, and, and also into what was also, for me, fantastic, all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, 
through this pandemic, then the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS. Fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that... I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coincidence and the fortunate in your life to be at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, and clever enough, and technically good enough to, to be a rap, to be a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, he is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a at national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill. Making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined moving from one to the other. Uh, how how can you possibly be as as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher, effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and from all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over different characters, strengths, players into a unit to play for uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic. Uh, uh, people in my life, in my in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think it, leadership's important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management; they have it. But I think um, you you can learn if you're central enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think well, like that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. 
completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, During your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier, even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> so many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When in in those uh, medieval days, you there were you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You um, in our road in Greenways, it was called in Chelmsford. We that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac. It's not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a a cul-de-sac and B because there weren't as many cars no we as many cars in those days so uh, we played acro- across the str- across the road um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back the goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted that was the goal and it's always just three of us play football but amongst those houses where we lived and played there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court, and uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street, and uh, we were actually, but that that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We lived, we lived, I was born in Ashton under Line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think, was uh, had a big influence, going back to that third goal in the World Cup, in many years in the back garden and when we moved on to it, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot and so I at that time and even today it's, it's, uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed and I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton even Jack Charlton his brother didn't know which was his best foot he, he was fantastic but I was pretty pretty um, um Two-footed, and a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, Although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well, and I was messing about, as I, I kindly put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me 
in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then, or centre-half at school. Um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game, and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. One game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about but t- between the two. I had the one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game, funny. I filled a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, v Lancashire up. Up in their territory, but that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games for those two or three years. Extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season around, I think September, October, I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a midfield player. So um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season, the three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, the programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, not just setting balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd, he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue, was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players. And Banks, was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course over the years, hopefully that, that had come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that 
A, he saw when I was at West Ham, and B, obviously acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it <laughs> And certainly my wife was fairly surprised when I, when I said I need her permission for, for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was, uh, which is, I can see in myself, I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world-class players like the Bobby Charlton's and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Watkins saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is, uh, was, he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across the, across. But not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mold mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those. Uh, those few months, and I think it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um. Well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And, of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate hey, at West Ham that we, it was a great time at the club, and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They'd won, of course, the... Uh, the, the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi-final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my... Uh, sell by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge then. I think uh, West West Brom actually got up that year, but I've made very little contributions to that success the club had. So um, yes, it, the, the American experiences were just fantastic. I never thought of long term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and. Um, uh, two daughters and my wife and she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there so that was, that was a good time it's completely different Ireland was just a just a I always joke about Ireland I was there for about I think a month I think it was and I enjoyed the experience and I earned a few quid and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England new, new kitchen <laughs> So it certainly went really well I suppose in the waning days of um, your career um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's, I think the, that kind of, uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after the finish playing, but in the long term when, um, uh, and I always joke with people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend. And, and I always jokingly say, you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70. 
and I think the, the whatever word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not not certainly, um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management or management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alfred Ramsey, which I take it into my, my business life and even my, uh, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's the simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alfred Ramsey period. Even some of the great players, I felt should have been in the squad possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. It ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.